A new podcast. Cool. Who's the first guest? What are you going to call it? No guests? What does akimbo mean? That's never going to work. Hey, it's Arav, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. The Italians have a wonderful phrase, salto mortale, the dangerous leap, the leap into the void, that fear we get in the pit of our stomach just before we commit, that fear that it's not going to work out. It's too soon. I'm not ready. And so we wait. But some people, some people don't wait. Carl Benz, when he launched the car, did it in Germany, where it was against the law to drive a car. And there were no passable roads. And there were no gas stations. He should have waited. Gutenberg, pioneer of movable type, launched the book when there were no bookstores. And when no one knew how to read. And when reading glasses were required but hadn't been invented yet. He should have waited. Internally, there's constant pressure to hesitate to hold back, not to launch, to find flaws, to give ourselves one more chance. But recently we made it worse. We made it worse because in all capital letters we added launch big, that you need a grand opening, that if you can't have a home run, you shouldn't even try. I blame it on Gilligan, on the Brady Bunch, and on the Beverly Hillbillies. It goes all the way from there to the odd couple, all the sitcoms we grew up with, The Flintstones, which are sort of like the Honeymooners, but in prehistoric times. The Brady Bunch, here's the story of a lovely lady. All these shows had a lot in common. One of them was this. The first 45 to 60 seconds was a theme song that explained in detail the entire storyline of the show. Even though the show, after commercials, was only 24 minutes long, the network insisted that they spend a minute to catch everybody up. That makes no sense. Why would you do that? So it's a mystery then. Why invest so much of this precious time in repeating a long theme song to make sure that no one was confused? Well, it's not that much of a mystery if you understand that before the internet and cable, there were only three TV channels, half The country was watching three channels, and if people switched from one to the other, you'd lose them. Maybe forever. The show was live. That was it. Once and done. And so you got conservative, because you needed the grand opening, the big win, every time. Where did this idea come from? Because it doesn't line up with the way that civilization evolved. For a really long time, If you bought something, you were buying it from someone that you already knew. The people in the village were the people in the village. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. They didn't need a hype man, an advanced man. They didn't need somebody pushing for the big grand opening. They were there yesterday, and they were going to be there tomorrow. I think it's worth understanding. It came from the carnival, from the traveling salesman from the medicine man, from the people going village to village. They'd send their hype man up front, their advance man. They knew 
they only had one day, two days, four days to make the sale, and then they were leaving town again. If you blew it, it was live. You weren't going to get another chance. And so the grand opening. And so the need to pigeonhole yourself, the need to get it right the first time, to go big or to stay home. The carnies, the guys in the carnival, called it a bally. The bally was the shtick, the theme song, the thing you'd say over and over again to make sure that every single time you interacted with somebody, you could make the sale. Here's one from a bunch of years ago, trying to get people to go in and see the piranhas. Get your tickets and come in. Killers of the Amazon can devour a cow in a matter of seconds, can leave nothing but the bare bones. First time shown in your city, and you may never have the chance to see it again. Alive, alive, alive. As you can see, the goal isn't to edify, to educate, to create an environment that you're going to come back again and again. The goal is to take your money and then leave town. And this idea that we've got to be in a hurry spread from that to the mass marketing of TV to the movies. It used to be that a movie could run for three months, six months, nine months in the theaters before it went away, usually forever. But then TV came along and TV advertising. And what the movie studios figured out was that they had a chance using TV to have really big opening weekends. And so they spent a fortune on Thursday nights advertising movies so that people would see them on the weekend. What they discovered was that giving away all the attractions in the TV ad, and more important, making a movie that lent itself to TV advertising, didn't lead to movies that were going to play in the theaters for months. Three days, 10 days, 20 days, gone. And so the same thing happened that happened to TV. We need to hype it. We need to promo it. We don't have very much time. We want to reach the largest number of people. Let's fast forward just a little bit more to Kickstarter, which I think should be called Kick Finisher. The reason it ought to be called Kick Finisher is that in order to make a Kickstarter succeed, except for the obvious edge cases, the random one in 10,000 that get lucky, someone had to get lucky. In order to have a Kickstarter succeed, you need to begin with the following. You need to begin with people who trust you. A Kickstarter is the end of a multi-month or multi-year effort to earn trust and attention. It's not a grand opening. It's a grand ending. That what you get to do when you make a successful Kickstarter, is go to people, the edge cases, the loyal ones, the true fans, go to those people and say, I'm ready for you now. We're doing a Kickstarter. Those Kickstarters always work. If you have a sufficient following before you begin, they always work. So it's not a lottery. It's not a chance to grab a brass ring. That as Kevin Kelly has pointed out, 1,000 true fans is sufficient to make it as a creative person. 1,000 people who will listen to you, who will pay you, who will show up, who care about you, who would miss you if you are gone. Only 1,000. So let's compare that to the grand opening thinking of, I need 10 million people to watch 
this TV show or it doesn't work. That's a 10,000x difference. You don't need to play that game. You can play your game. And your game is slow and steady, daring, risky, thrilling, but slow and steady. Because the goal isn't to hype your way with an advanced man using a bally day after day to get one more rube to give you a dollar to see your piranha. No, you're playing a different game. The game we're playing doesn't need a grand opening. It needs a grand finishing. There must be an alternative. How did Wikipedia grow without a grand opening? What about Harry Potter or The Martian? What about Fifty Shades of Grey or Microsoft or Kiva or the Union Square Cafe? The list goes on and on. Most of the brands, most of the organizations that we care about, they didn't have a grand opening. They didn't have a hype man. They didn't launch with a bang. There must be another way. The alternative is called First 10. Everyone knows 10 people. Everyone has 10 people who will listen to them. Tell 10 people. See what happens. If those people tell others, the word will spread. If they don't, make better work. Take your novel. Send it to 40 people, 40 people who trust you and like you. See what happens. Maybe they'll share it. If they share it, it'll spread. If it spreads, it'll reach more people. Sooner or later, someone will reach out to you and ask you to write something else. First 10. 10 by 10 by 10. You put an idea in the world, not to everyone in the world, just to people who want to hear it, and then maybe it spreads. And if it spreads, it grows. And if it grows, you get to do it again. Almost 20 years ago, I was at a conference. There were some cool people there. And we were going around the circle introducing each other. And a guy says, yeah, my name is Sergey, and I have this little search engine called Google. And at the time, a lot of people knew about Google, but it wasn't the worldwide phenomenon we know today. And then he said something profound. He said, we don't do any outbound marketing promotion or hype. And let me tell you why. We figure that one day everyone will use Google. And we also know that every day Google gets better. And since we're getting better every day, we're in no hurry to have people use it for the first time because tomorrow or the day after that is soon enough because it'll be better. They'll have a better first impression. We're in no hurry. Instead, we're going to make the best thing that we know how to make and wait for people to tell others. But it's not just digital stuff. There was a little tiny restaurant in the East Village of Manhattan years ago called Momofuko. No one had ever heard of it. You could walk in any time. This guy named David Chang, sort of crazy, had a little counter and a bunch of tables. And my family and I used to go there, sometimes for lunch on a weekend. And there were all these rules. You couldn't leave this out, no subtractions, no additions, and eat what you eat. That's all you get. But what happened day by day, is the word spread. It got to the point, as Yogi Berra said, where no one goes there because it's so crowded. And it turned into an entire empire. Or consider the amazing podcast 99% Invisible from Roman Mars. How'd you hear about it? Did you hear about it from those Super Bowl ads they ran? Of course not. 
There were dozens and dozens of episodes of 99% Invisible before you heard about it. Because Roman took the same approach. How do I make something for a few, something special, something that's really hard to pigeonhole, something new? Or consider a piece of software like Dropbox. I don't recall ever seeing an ad for Dropbox until just recently. Instead, what Dropbox did was build a service that was important to share. Not just to talk about it, but to use it with other people. Or my friend Jill Greenberg, one of the most talented and well-known photographers in the world. How did Jill get there? She didn't get there by being picked by somebody to push her to the masses. She got there by making quirky art. By saying, I don't shoot pictures like everybody else. I shoot pictures like me. And so her photographs are distinctive. They don't fit in. Early on, lots and lots of people didn't buy the photographs she wanted to sell to them, the magazines, the commercial shoots that she needed. No, she was too far out there for the masses to adopt. So she did the smart thing. She didn't complain or conform. Instead, she made something the masses didn't want. She made something for the early adopters. She refused to pigeonhole it. She didn't have to hype it because the early adopters, they're looking for something on the edge. And she had something on the edge. And then, of course, it spreads, right? The first thing that happens is the art director says, get me Jill Greenberg. And then, of course, the art director says, get me someone who looks like Jill Greenberg. And then you know you've made it. So the goal here, when we are making our best work, the work we seek to make, is not to listen to the people in the middle of the curve. Because the people in the middle of the curve aren't listening to us. The goal is not the Flintstones or the Brady Bunch or the Beverly Hillbillies. The goal is to go to the fringe, to the edge, to the people who are listening, to the people who care. Not with a bally, but with something real. To invite them in and to tell them something that they didn't know before. To bring them something that's a little more complicated than an NBC executive would have gone for. To take them on a journey from here to there. Not with a grand opening, but with a small opening, with a whisper. Here, I made this. Here, I made this. That's our work. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode or just about anything that's on your mind, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K. And click the appropriate button. I think this question deserves its own segment. So here we go. Hey, Seth, it's Paula. So being a musician, being a public speaker, have a few things in common. In your episode, The Invisibility Paradox, I started thinking about performing from memory versus reading. 
A musician can perform by memory, relying on the aural and muscle memory. But if the notes are in front of them and there's a bit of nerves or pressure, they may switch over and start reading the notes, and then it's a different kind of performance. As a podcaster, I'm sure you strive not to read, but let it derive from your natural thoughts. I was hoping you could talk about your journey as a public speaker and how much you've come to rely on your notes as a prompt, or have you learned to simply disguise reading off notes? It's a tricky process either way. And thoughts on the interference of having a visual to bail you out is actually my point. Have you discovered the best method? As always, thanks for your insight. Thank you for this. It made me think about one of my musical heroes, Keith Jarrett. Keith Jarrett, who was one of the most popular jazz performers at the peak of his career, was noteworthy for two things. One, playing standards, but lots of jazz pianists and quartets have done this. But secondly, for arriving on stage with no music and no plan. He simply sat down and played. I got to hear him in person once in the 80s, and it was an astonishing and scary thing to see. I was astonished to discover, as I went to find that clip for you on YouTube, that people have taken the improvisations that Keith did live in real time in front of an audience, transcribed them, wrote them down, and learned to play them, which is part of what we are here to talk about. First, the improvisation, second, the writing down, then playing it from sheet music, and then playing it from memory. So let's consider that music, many forms of music, have three different types. The first one, the one we're all used to from third graders performing at the fall concert, is playing the notes. And you can tell when someone is simply looking at the sheet music and playing the notes, even sight reading, playing music that they really haven't practiced that much. The second kind of music, the music that we often see, particularly when it's played by professionals in classical music, is someone who is reading the music but knows it so well that they are just a little bit ahead of where they are. That as in reading a book, our whole brain has to be at work to make it so that it doesn't sound like we are sounding out each word, but in fact, we are saying the words in a row as if we mean them. And so most music, I think, fits into this category. Certainly a cover band, they know it cold. Maybe they've memorized it, but it's almost the same. They know it cold. But then the third one, the third one is the Keith Jarrett level, the one where you are making it up as you go. And there's something truly magical about watching this happen, whether it's a Grateful Dead concert from 1974, or 
a jazz quartet trading fours. I want two, three, ah. Uh. <laughs> So when I think about giving a speech, I think it's worth noting that there are probably the same three levels. The first one is someone who is simply reading, reading without having spent hours and hours and hours practicing it, or perhaps a politician who is simply reading but is very good at using a teleprompter. The second one is somebody who has practiced the words so much, it doesn't sound to us like they are reading, and since it doesn't sound like they are reading, we believe for a moment like they are actually talking to us. This is the work of a really good book on tape reader. And then the third kind, the kind that I aspire to when I do this podcast, is there is no script. Now, I'm not in Keith Jarrett's category. I'm not sitting here creating works of wonder in real time. But I have no script. That's on purpose. And I think it's really important for people who aren't podcasters to think about something. If you're going to call a meeting on Zoom or in person, why? Why not just send a memo instead? Because no matter how well you read that memo, it's still a memo, a memo that could have been read asynchronously, a memo that could have been studied, edited, rewritten, improved upon. It is far more efficient to send a memo. The reason we have a meeting, A, is to exert emotional labor and let people know this one is important, that we canceled everything else we were doing so we could all look at each other while I say what's in my script. But second, because I shouldn't have a script. I should be talking to you. People don't have a script when they go on a date. They don't have a script when they're having an important interaction. And somehow, we've evolved to this place where verbal speech is A, scary, and B, supposed to be read. I'm not buying it. I know that if you take the time, that if you practice the art of saying what you mean and meaning what you say, of slowing down before you speed up, thinking about the message that you are trying to send, you know how to do that. We've each done it, maybe as recently as an hour ago. We have to figure out how to do it when the stakes are high. So sure, note cards. Sure, a teleprompter. But my point is, reading your memo, reading your speech, it's a tell. It's a tell to your audience that maybe you don't really mean it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.